I'm Dr. Jay Anders, and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. I'd like to welcome everybody to another episode of Tell Me Where It Hurts. Today's guest is a little different than some of my past guests more involved with the payer side of things and the management of payments and things like that, uh, as opposed to true healthcare IT in the weeds kind of, of topic. It reminded me when we were researching for this particular episode back in the day when I was medical director for an HMO and then an insurance company who bought that HMO and in charge of utilization management, which was nothing more than reviewing doctor's records to make sure that what they were doing was meeting utilization standards for meds and labs, tests, things like that. Um, I had a cadre of nurses always looking at that and I walk into my office and there would be a stack on my desk of things to review. And some were no brainers and some were not so no brainers. But now we are in a new era of Medicare Advantage or value-based payments, which is a little different than what the old days were because we're basing it hopefully on quality metrics and actually making patients better. So it's a little different. I think it's a grand improvement from the old days, but today's guest is working in that space. Um, his name is Lynn Carroll, Chief Operating Officer of HX Blocks. Um, he's an expert in value-based contracts, bundled payments, paper performance, reimbursement, payment models, episodes of care, things like that. In-depth knowledge of healthcare insurance and integrated payment ecosystems, as the business professionals launched several successful healthcare payment platform businesses when HIPAA was just beginning, which kind of dates both of us. Um, he has been working in this area for some time, both I think he's had experience on the payer side and the managed care organizations, as well as now the new era of accountable care. So Lynn, welcome to the program. Yeah, it's great to be here, Jay. Uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. So as I said, you've had a lot of experience uh, in this area. Um, how'd you get into this and how'd you end up at HS Blocks? Well, some of your lead-in uh, in terms of your career working in uh, HMO, provider-sponsored HMO that eventually was acquired, I was in the same uh, boat. I, I got into uh, working for a provider-sponsored health plan, and this is, uh, you know, like you said, date us is back in the 90s. Um, and at that particular point in time, we were doing uh, global reimbursement types of programs uh, throughout the Midwest. Uh, primarily with uh, multi-specialty medical groups uh, and hospital systems who were uh, looking to have different types of programs to offer to either employers directly or um, as a result of uh, competition in various markets with uh, you know, more traditional commercial insurers. And so uh, we got into uh, what we would call global reimbursement programs, some of which were capped, some of which were percentage of premium types of programs, uh, primarily um, to expand their footprint uh, of those organizations, state contracts, federal contracts, et cetera. And that led me into technology uh, to implement those types of programs, track the performance under those, 
and that ev eventually uh, brought me to HS Blocks. So when you look back over the last 20, 25 years uh, with what you've seen and what you see change, tell me a little bit about um, how you see Medicare Advantage actually moving forward, gaining strength. It is gaining strength now. Um, but tell me a little bit of your perspective on the trajectory of this particular part of healthcare IT. Yeah, it's interesting, right? It, it, it's a burgeoning uh, market. Um, I think you see a lot of uh, traditional, you know, commercial players also making, you know, significant margins uh, in the Medicare Advantage space. Um, and I think if you look back over 20, 25 years, you can see uh, a shift started to occur, um, not only when it was called Medicare Plus Choice in the late 90s, uh, but then there started to be a technology explosion in the 2000, you know, early 2000 timeframe where uh, HIPAA standard transactions came into vogue that allowed uh, more electronic types of reimbursement programs to be put into place. And then there was incorporation of quality metrics alongside those reimbursement programs, which then ultimately led uh, into this sort of melding of, you know, quality or pay for performance outcomes-based programs, i.e. value uh, for dollar spent. Uh, and uh, eventually Medicare, uh, under Medicare Advantage, you know, put risk adjusters in uh, to be able to pay, presumably for the disease burden uh, that was underneath uh, these programs. And I, I think one of the questions from an evolutionary standpoint, and as it continues to grow, is, is the trend line of these types of programs from an expenditure standpoint uh, a result of you know, more and appropriate treatment of uh, disease or could it be potentially affected uh, by risk scoring, uh, which may be potentially accruing additional expenditure underneath these types of cap arrangements. Uh, so you think about the evolution kind of from uh, transactional based types of programs, more fee for service into risk adjusted programs that then the top line of these programs uh, for Medicare Advantage plans is, is significant, uh, significantly driven by uh, the risk adjustment component. So you talked a little bit about quality measures and risk adjustments and, and the like. Um, how do you see data fitting into this? Um, you know, our particular companies in the data acquisition business and data manipulation business. Um, so how do you see the, um, the impact of good data versus bad data on the paper performance field? Yeah, I think when you think about um, and take kind of a big picture view, uh, obviously, data is a critical component of understanding things like disease burden of a particular individual and certainly a population at large. Um, and I think that data, um, you know, it helps to shape and focus resource consumption, certainly on the medical expense side. But I, I think, likewise, it's important to make sure that we have the appropriate data and the appropriate um, uh, you know, in, insight into 
the disease burden so that we have appropriate revenue, not only to cover those expenses, but also to have reserves uh, for unexpected events or, you know, uh, things that are unanticipated from an expenditure standpoint. But I think understanding the population uh, at large and then drilling down to a patient level to understand where to allocate things like time and money, i.e. resources, uh, is all a data-driven exercise. The question then becomes, you know, how do you effectively do that? Um, you don't want that stack of papers uh, that you mentioned uh, at the start. And is that an efficient or scalable approach to continue to scale these programs uh, to stick, you know, a whole team of folks uh, responsible for going through that stack of paper every day. Well, I've had, you know, Mickey Tripathi on, on the program before. And of course, his one of his big mantras is interoperability and information blocking and things like that. Um, where do you see the, the interoperability standards coming into play here as we try to uh, manage you know, patients from a quality standpoint, as well as from a payment acquisition standpoint? Yeah, I think um, certainly when you look at the, you know, 21st Century Cures uh, Act, and you look at uh, the information blocking component, I think it, it, it opens up the path to effective data sharing. And I think it's also um, important, uh, the, the transparency components from a pricing standpoint, uh, create an environment where not only from you know, a Medicare Advantage or government program standpoint, but certainly from an employer-based uh, 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 program management standpoint, that as you look at the different fiduciary responsibilities for how money is going to be allocated and ultimately spent, um, it's it's a function of, you know, can we have the appropriate data at the appropriate time? Can we wade through this tsunami of data to pull out the pieces that are important to ultimately get to a more prospective or a more proactive environment uh, with regard to intervention as opposed to the trend line or the cost line being based on, on more retrospective results? You know, it's very interesting. Um, population health management always rears its head when we talk about data and treating of populations. But as in my experience as a primary care provider for a couple of decades, um, it really boils down to treating one patient at a time. Your population is cared for once your patient is cared for. So I, I find that, that very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about 21st century cures and the Accountable Care Act and how HS Blocks fits in and what, what part of this are you fulfilling? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, these, these programs uh, that are being put in place, um, the value-based uh, continuum, they have different types of requirements. Uh, they have different administrative needs. Uh, we talk about different types of program design, total cost of care programs, specialty carve-out programs, direct primary care or CPC plus programs underneath, uh, you know, Medicare, for example, they have different types of administrative needs that are, you know, not traditional uh, schedule an appointment, receive a service, 
submit a bill, um, have that bill possibly reviewed or ultimately paid. Now you're getting into multi-stakeholder uh, types of scenarios. Uh, total cost of care program is a great example, right? You've got a whole myriad of a care team uh, that you're trying to coordinate underneath some form of a fixed price, whether it's per head or it's a you know per episode, per bundle type of a scenario. Now you've got to communicate more effectively with open data exchange um, across the care team in a more uh, proactive or real-time type of a basis. And so the programs from a definitional standpoint from an operational standpoint, and then ultimately from a performance reporting standpoint, simply have different needs uh, than traditional fee-for-service. So HS Blocks recognized that. And we said in 2017, when we started the company, that our premise was to enable payer provider collaboration for scaling of these programs. Uh, so you can think about us as being positioned to help uh, the genesis and uh, forward progress of this movement to more pay for performance uh, and ultimately risk sharing uh, than traditional uh, technology uh, solution vendors. So I'm curious about your opinion about where you think the good old fee for service segment of this is headed. Uh, we see Medicare Advantage climbing, but I, in my opinion, I really don't see it being eliminated simply because it's going to be almost impossible to have paper performance for everybody across the, the continuum of healthcare here. But I'm curious about where you think fee-for-service is going to go and how it fits in to what will be now the new normal as paper performance takes off. Well, I think there there are still going to be components. Uh, you know, I, I think Medicare said, you know, by... Uh, 2030, they want to have 100% of dollars being disbursed under some form of either a pay for performance or value based type of a program. And I, I think that's uh, a good, good goal, uh, possibly a lofty goal. Uh, but I think there's going to be components uh, that still lend themselves uh, to fee for service. And some of those things might be uh, some of the alternative delivery site mechanisms. Uh, like uh, mechanisms in the community, mechanisms that are um, in the home, uh, some of the remote patient monitoring types of activities. Some of those may still be uh, more transactionally oriented, uh, where there's a service provided, there's a bill generated, and it's you know paid according to some type of a schedule, as opposed to part of a you know either per head or a bundled uh, episodic type of a payment. So I do think there will still be uh, certain types of services that will be more uh, transactionally oriented. Uh, and I think that you know, potentially never goes away, uh, those particular pieces. But I think the holistic view of reconciling even those fee-for-service components under some type of a global uh, budget or a global model of reimbursement is probably uh, going to help uh, with some of the concern that those services might be overutilized or therefore uh, become you know, a new way of quote unquote gaming the system uh, to continue to you know, do same old, same old approach. Well, interestingly, you said that because that's, that brings me to the next thing I, I'd like to talk to you about or with, 
about uh, the new pushback for what has happened with Medicare Advantage regarding, well, first, they decided that Medicare Advantage would be a savings for national health care spend, and that didn't occur. They found out it actually spent more money, and now they recently have passed an act to say, well, maybe we've overpaid you because there's not documentation to say that you've actually provided the services for the conditions that you reported. So I'd, I'd like for you to comment a little bit on that. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback by the insurance industry, of course, on this, because they don't want to have to refund money that goes back several years. But I'm curious about your opinion about uh, how Medicare is intending to manage the growth in Medicare Advantage and still try to save U.S. healthcare dollars. Yeah, so I, I think recently I had seen um, some information uh, that indicated that the belief was, and I think this was like 2020 data, that uh, as much as uh, 12 to 25 billion uh, had been potentially overspent underneath the Medicare Advantage programs. And I think fundamentally, there's going to probably continue to be some uh, look at, you know, how do we scrutinize the programs? How do we understand uh, the, the true disease burden uh, of these programs? And in fact, are, is the spending trend uh, a function of overdiagnosis um, because of the incentivization for the risk scoring uh, components? And so the question I think is, do we have um, uh, a trend line that's based upon truly uh, uh, a true disease burden versus uh, a mechanism of how things are coded that indicates uh, some you know level of financial risk. And so I think there's going to be uh, scrutiny. And I think you know recently uh, the Justice Department has gotten involved. Uh, with regard to looking at some of the larger uh, Medicare Advantage contractors to understand is the documentation uh, there to support uh, this, you know, disease burden on these programs, and therefore is that why uh, the rates are what they are, and is it potentially creating a pool of profit uh, underneath these programs that wasn't intended in the first place? That's, that's a very interesting take on that. And it comes to mind of where we're back to the idea of clinical data and documentation. And what we talked about, and we both come from this kind of a background where you've had a cadre of people reviewing things. And going forward, as we have literally millions and millions of people in these programs generating clinical data that have either has to be reviewed electronically or in some shape or fashion, if we're going to put a, get a handle on the expense. So where do you see that as far as, as going forward and how organizations should approach looking at their documentation, looking at what they're reporting as far as, as RAF scores and HCC codes and things like that? So where do you see technology kind of entering in there and is it going to be scalable enough? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. You know, you can go to probably any uh, healthcare conference uh, in the country and hear a lot of talk about, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, 
uh, robotic process automation, uh, things that, you know, ideally hold promise for scaling. And I think uh, it comes down to, you know, apply what, what I would probably refer to as applied algorithmic approaches, uh, which would be scenarios where you can validate the accuracy of the data. Um, you can correlate that data from dis disparate sources, for example, charts, notes, uh, pharmacy data, administrative data, lab results. Uh, you have device-generated readings. Uh, in some cases, you might have patient-reported outcomes. Uh, and recently, a lot more third-party sources like uh, social determinants and other health equity components on more of the whole health side to kind of garner uh, a picture of, of uh, I guess you might say truism of what is the disease uh, burden for a given patient and then ultimately, you know, a collective uh, population. And I think the only way to really scale that isn't the, hey, here's my inbox, right? And here's my cadre to use your term of, of folks for reviewing these things, but how do you efficiently um, and in a more standard uh, approach, uh, you know, wade through these volumes of data. How do you get through the the noise factor of having so much data to get to the crux, which is what's meaningful about this data, and how does it, uh, and to what degree does it accurately reflect? Uh, disease burden at an individual or population level. So I think technology is a, is a key component to that, but it has to be applied uh, in an algorithmic manner uh, that it is uh, not only um, analyzing the data, but it's validating uh, the disease burden of these populations. So as you think about this, um from the old ways to what we have available or will hopefully have more availability in the future. Is there a better way to, to start to think about getting at the true cost of care for a set of diseases? Is it, give me a little uh, flavor on what you think about how we could do that. Is there a better way? Should we go back to the old ways? Well, I think a lot of these things also uh, speak to timeliness, which is um, so much, so many things have traditionally been retrospective uh, in nature, which is after the fact, I'm going to evaluate what occurred and then try to figure out what I should do going forward. And certainly uh, that's part of informing a go forward strategy. But one of the questions is, I think with with these types of technologies, uh, you know, what I was referring to as applied algorithmic approaches, with these types of technologies, can we move things to the front end of the process? Uh, can we do more of the, like you said at the start, the more of the health maintenance, uh, you know, types of programs that empower uh, patients and their uh, provider relationships to be able to be more prospective and more proactive with regard to uh, either chronic disease identification or chronic disease maintenance before we get into the you know higher cost or more acute uh, services. And so the, the, the question I think is, can we get data shared on a timely basis? Is it the right data? Have we applied uh, algorithms, for example, to wade through the noise, to get to the meaningful components? 
to then stratify the population and then spend the resources where they need to be spent uh, as opposed to applying the technology for the purpose of potentially uh, having a, a disease burden that's not actually present and is that one of the reasons that the trend line for programs like Medicare Advantage might be higher uh, than originally intended? I think uh, I agree with that. I think it's 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 going to come down to putting information in front of providers at the point of care when they have the patients sitting in front of them to actually you know sort through what they need to sort through and make sure there is a source of truth that is that is data that they actually go forward. So what do you see about, what do you think about upcoming trends in this space? Do you see Medicare Advantage headed, other things headed? Give me a flavor of your vision of the future. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to continue to see, you know, a go forward um, evolution uh, of these value-based programs. And as they start to take hold, I think there'll be course corrections along the way um, to understand things like, um, it, let's say I've got a total cost of care program or a specialty carve out type of program. If, if I look at the, at the care team that's involved, do I have the right care team? Uh, you know, traditional uh, referral paths may not be the ones that are needed under some of these programs. Am I uh, referring to high value providers within a network, for example? Um, if, if you have a fixed or a more fixed uh, revenue stream, it begs uh, continued evolution of the delivery side of things to understand, you know, what resources need to be consumed and likewise, it requires a continued approach to the quality aspect of reporting to make sure that uh, necessary care is not being potentially withheld under these programs. And I think that the two go hand in hand, which is if I have a more fixed uh, type of a reimbursement model, then I need to understand uh, where my resources are being spent and am I doing it in an effective manner some of that also gets to, I think, value-based program design overall, which is, is there a, a an alignment between incentives? And when I, I think about that, I think about it as the benefit design of a given coverage program, how does that relate to a value-based program design? One of the things I often talk about, and this is potentially more of a commercial uh, type of a view, but from a commercial program design, if I have a benefit plan that has an open access component to it, then I'm you know, essentially planning to go wherever I want to underneath my open access program. If I'm now part of a value-based program that might potentially limit some of that choice, under my uh, open access program, how does that affect my personal, you know, responsibility from an out-of-pocket uh, standpoint? Seems like I should have less out-of-pocket if I have less choice um, uh, in, in a program. Likewise, on the provider side of the equation, if I'm being asked to have a more fixed uh, type of a price and be responsible for an outcome, why am I still having to collect five or $10,000 from the patient? And so that harmonization of benefit design with value-based program design, I think is something that's going to have to continue to evolve as these programs are put in place. 
you brought us something I think is that's very interesting. We'll take off on just a little bit about what you said. How do you see, because um, we're rated as providers, we're rated on several different things. We've got, you know, cost of care, how much money we're spending for tests, where we're we sending our patients, as well as patient satisfaction. And we all know that satisfied patients with their provider actually decreases the cost of care. So where do you see the evaluation on the provider side coming into play with, with value-based care? Because they're high-performing providers and there's low-performing providers. Yeah, so I think you know it, it kind of gets to um, the formation of value-based networks, if you will, which is uh, care team uh, coordination, transitions in care, and understanding who should be part of that team. Uh, some of those scenarios also get into fundamental lower cost types of services, like are there services that can be leveraged in the community? Are there services that can be leveraged at the street level or in the home that help to reduce uh, disease burden or at least manage it effectively uh, in an environment that is lower cost? And a, a crux of that, right, is the patient's motivation and engagement and their relationship in a lot of cases with a primary care physician. I fully agree with that statement. I think that's going to be playing a bigger role going forward in the delivery of healthcare. And it's just going to be something we have to do if we're really actually going to make this, this kind of system work. Um, well, we're coming I, kind of up I've on the some, end. Go ahead. Yeah, I've seen some of that happening too. Like even in my own experience as I've gone to my dentist, uh, to my primary care physician, and even to my dermatologist over the last several months, there's been more of an increased emphasis on exploring other aspects of my life, like uh, understanding, you know, how do I feel about things? Um, what's my, you know, mental state of health? Uh, questions about um, how am I doing at home? Uh, how am I doing uh, in my family? Things of that nature, which uh, I think is, is is part of uncovering, you know, what are the things that can be done to assist people in ultimately being uh, more empowered uh, as a patient for their own uh, health and well-being? We're kind of coming up on the uh, end of our time here. So I asked this question of everyone that I've, that I've interviewed is if you had a magic wand and could choose anything that would absolutely happen in, in your realm of healthcare, what would it be? Well, I, I think we're, we're seeing some things happen that I've hoped would happen, which is more access to data in a more timely fashion. I think uh, ultimately, I would like to see patient empowerment uh, in a way that we could ultimately motivate individuals to be more proactive uh, with regard to health issues. Uh, I think of just you know typical chronic scenarios like you know hypertension, obesity, uh, mental health, uh, the state of your own mental well-being, things that ultimately contribute to uh, chronic disease uh, burden uh, that if, if we can create a scenario where, and it's, a, it's not an easy task, right? But if we can create a scenario where patients have more access to data, 
better uh, decision-making capability um, with regard to uh, cost, uh, out-of-pocket uh, components that they might be responsible for, and don't have to put off uh, some of the more maintenance-oriented activities that ultimately can result in more acute incidents, uh, then I think we, we've gotten where we need to be. Are, are we going to get there soon? I don't know. Um, but I would really like to see patients have that total empowerment from a data standpoint and feel like uh, that the relationship they have with their care team and particularly with their primary care physician, they have enough time uh, to be able to understand uh, how they can take more of an active role in their own health. I think one of the challenges we've seen is, uh, you know, physicians feeling like they don't have appropriate amount of time. Uh, to work with patients. And I think likewise, uh, patients would like to have more time. Lynn, I think that's a that's a great goal. So I'd like to thank you for being on uh, the podcast today. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about HS, HS Blocks, how would they do that? So uh, we have a website, hsblocks.com, of course. Uh, there's quite a bit of information on the website. We have uh, resources uh, tab there where you can read white papers that we've put together. We've done a good job, I think, with uh, some two-minute videos that tell you a little bit more about what we do. And then we're, we're heavy uh, users of LinkedIn, so we often are publishing articles uh, and also articles from even competitors of ours that we think are of value uh, for folks to take a look at and understand kind of this whole value-based space how we play in it, what others are doing in the space. So hsblocks.com and follow us on LinkedIn and you'll see generally what we've got going on. Lynn, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, it's been great to talk with you, Jay. Um, it, it didn't realize we had so, so much in common in our background. Thanks again. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about Medicomp Systems, visit our website at www.medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MedicompSys or myself at MedicompDoc, or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.